I'm not going to tell you how to start a bug-powered vehicle. I'm just going to put you inside one with somebody who knows how and send you off on a ride. Cameron Hurley. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hull. And I'm Lee Esses. This episode is going to hit different for pantsers versus plotters. Today we're talking about something that has popped up in basically every episode this month. I think it has every episode this month. And that is the cautionary tale of overworld building. We're talking about when not to world build. How to know in your story what's a great, rich, enticing detail in the world and what should be left up to the reader's imagination. So a lot of what we say today for pantsers or people on that end of the, as I heard it recently referred to, the writing spectrum between pantsers and plotters, people on the pantsers side, this is going to apply to you during editing. Because while you're writing, you are likely going to just put whatever down on paper that you come up with in the moment. For the plotters out there, this is going to apply during your first draft. You may feel like you need to overexplain things because they're cool, but if you do that too much, then it's just going to be boring. So the real thing we want to get across, pantser or plotter, is make sure your world building does not come at the expense of the story. You want to immerse the reader in your story. You don't want to drown them in it. Those details can be cool to you, but they will hit differently depending on if you're a plotter, if you're a pantser, or if you're a reader even. It's more like you're giving the option for them to go take a nice dip in the hot spring. You're not shoving their head underneath the water saying, you must swim. (laughs) The reader's already taken a chance on you. They don't deserve to be drowned. The first thing that I want to talk about in this idea of when to stop world building is the iceberg theory. I've mentioned it a couple of times. I think I did some writing retreat topics on this, but the iceberg theory is going to be the linchpin of how to go about developing your world and introducing it. So Google or imagine for a second you are looking at an iceberg and you can see under the surface of the water. Maybe a fifth of the iceberg is actually visible above the water. That spot that is above the water is what is going to be visible for your readers. Those are the things that you're going to explain. Those are the things that are going to be in the story. The rest of the iceberg, and there's a ton of it under the water, is going to be everything else. That section has the supporting details. It has a lot of the information about the culture, the history, the religion of your world that isn't necessarily relevant for the plot, for the characters, but it's there and it can be developed and can be fleshed out for your world to feel a little bit more complete. These are things that support everything that you actually show your reader. So that bottom part, the underwater part, the part of your world building that the reader doesn't see, you as the author should have an understanding, at least vaguely, of what's down there. You don't want to put 90% of the iceberg above the water. And if you're not one of the people who likes to thoroughly plot out every single detail, leaving room for that is still important. There is a country over here. 
It's not relevant to the story. We just happen to know there's a country over there. You don't have to work out their world history, but you know there is one so that if the opportunity arises, you can fill it out, especially if you're a pantser. And hey, now we're talking about Canada's history. Sure. But that's the thing. It's that idea that you only need to show what is actually relevant to the story, what is relevant to the characters, and what will enrich the reader's experience. If you presented the entire iceberg to the reader, it would honestly be like Titanic. (laughs) And down she goes. Another theory to help you understand how much world building to do is one we've actually talked about on the podcast before. I couldn't figure out which episode, so we're going to talk about it again because it's relevant here too. But it's that too deep theory. So you only need two levels of explanation about something, and that's enough. So that's basically the idea. You have one fantastical thing, and if you want to explain it, if it needs to be explained for the readers to understand it, then you only go two levels down. Spaceships exist. That is your fantastical thing. Now you go one level. They're fueled by matter and antimatter collisions. Okay? Then you go one further. How do they get the matter and antimatter collisions? Well, they collect it from trash and it's separated from matter when replicators create food and teacups and whatever. That's as far as you need to go into establishing that this is a thing that exists and has been thought out. Any further than that, and you start to just get annoying. This goes in with our next concept of you're proving to the reader that you've thought it out so they don't have to. If you were listening earlier this month, especially to the Make It Small episode, we spent a fair amount of time talking about the Douglas Adams towel idea of if you go into enough detail on this one particular thing, you don't have to do it anywhere else. This is really easy to do in that fun, lighthearted comic setting because he went into some deep detail about a towel and why a towel is needed. And from there, we can infer if this person has a towel, they have everything else they need for space travel. And that gives you as an author a lot of freedom in this fun, lighthearted way to not have to explain a bunch of stuff. Yeah, we get a brief explanation about the babblefish. Okay, it takes brainwaves and translates it. Cool, that's all we need to know. We trust that Douglas Adams has thought this through because he's gone into so much detail about the towel We're just glad he's sparing us from that again. (laughs) Another thing to take into consideration when you are world building and when you're presenting your world to your readers is how you go about that process. So we talked about the two deep theory. We talked about the iceberg theory and we talked about the hitchhiker's absurd theory. Now you have what you need to present and how to present it. Let's get into the actual how to present it. And this is going to be through experiences of the characters, not info dumps. If you take nothing else from this entire month, please take away the fact that your character should experience the world. You as the author should not be info dumping to the reader. Nothing to me is more boring than sitting down to a book and within the first couple of pages, 
getting a bunch of boring information about a world I don't care about. There was one in particular I read, I think last summer, that did this a bunch. I have tabbed in that book entire pages worth of info dumping, and it is horrendous. And believe it or not, authors are at least as guilty of this in sequels. Yes. (laughs) So when you are trying to do this through experiences rather than info dumps, You need to do your world building during the scenes, not in between them. So we've talked before about the scene and sequel, where you have your scene, this is the action, something is happening, and then the sequel is the breath of air afterwards where they're connecting between the scenes. So when things are happening, that's when you do your world building. This is generally a good litmus test to know if you're info dumping is if it's happening between scenes or if a character is anchored to a location and then within that location, we're learning about the world. Your character is experimenting with these critters and therefore we're learning about them versus, oh, by the way, you reader need to know about these critters. Now we can move on with the story. Also remember that not every character experiences the world in the same way. As the author, you don't need to define every detail of the differences in the tertiary characters in the world. You don't need to establish the differences between your two main characters other than just representing how they go about and navigate in the world. And you can use those two different characters to highlight different aspects of your world building. This is especially fun if one of your characters is a conspiracy theorist. You can have a conversation between a flat earther and a climate scientist. You can have these kinds of interactions where you, the author, know the truth about the world. But if everyone in your planet all believes the truth, it's not interesting and it doesn't feel real. Another thing to keep in mind is the social injustices are especially to be experienced, not told. Don't tell people that there is a problem with racism, that there is a problem that this character faces. You need to show it through action. Show that worst part of the world through how the character experiences it. In Guild Wars, I believe it was Guild Wars 2, there is a race of sentient people, more or less, that are plant-based instead of mammal-based. And one of the less kind races in the world would always call them like lettuce heads and cabbage heads because they were plant-based creatures. Something like this can be lighthearted if you want it to not have an emotional impact on the reader. Or you can actually take this to heart and see how a young child says, I'm not worthy of whatever this is because I'm a lettuce head. And then they experience it and you can get more emotional with this tiny moment by showing a social injustice in your story. Another mistake that I often see, especially newer authors make when it comes to presenting world building, is that it completely throws off the pace of a story. Because they try to present their world building, oftentimes in an info dump, in the wrong situations. They say, ooh, here's this exciting thing that's about to happen, but first I need to explain to my reader how magic works. I need to explain to my reader how this aspect of world building works. Otherwise, they're not going to understand the action that's about to happen. 
but that just slows everything down. So if you want to have a scene that is fast-paced and intense, save the world building for afterwards. Save it for another time. Readers are actually quite forgiving when it comes to being a little bit confused for a short period of time. They will innately trust you to explain something eventually if it's important. If it's important to know that playing this instrument is how magic works. We can see the character play the instrument and then the rabbit jump out of the shadow. We can see a basis of how the magic works and then later get an in-depth detail of how this works. It doesn't happen in the same moment because there's more to experience than just this tiny bit of world building. It's also important to have a variety of paces in your story, not just a scene and sequel, but have moments of characters being introspective, have moments of the characters running for their lives. Knowing how to integrate your world building in each of these areas separately is really a skill and a craft that you will pursue for the rest of your life. This is high-level stuff, but if you nail it, man, it makes the story sing. And in that same kind of idea, as you are figuring out that pacing, as you do get it into those right moments, you do need to remember to allow yourself time and allow for moments of world building within the story. This is a discussion that I had with you quite a bit when I was editing Fog and Flame. Because you as an action author who is at that point written mostly real world, not a lot of world building involved stories, you wanted to just move on and you wanted to keep pushing. And I'm like, no, no, take a moment and explain this piece of world building just a little bit. Not too in depth, not an info dump, but give us a little bit more of this world that you've developed and created so that we can enjoy it as well. Let your character have a moment where they can just sip coffee and watch the sunrise. Give them a moment to stare at a holy sight. Make sure that it is relevant and experienced by the characters when you have these moments in time that are a break, a pause. But you can incorporate these nice serene moments of world building in those breaks if you do it through the eyes of the character. And when we talk about world building through experiences instead of those info dumps, one of the things to keep in mind is how your character experiences the world. A lot of this has to do with their career, how they were raised, their backstory, yes, but also the lie they believe about themselves. Figure out how that lie connects to the world at large, and that will help you define your character and define how they experience the world. I'm not good enough because I'm a lettuce head. Okay, that tells us about the world, that tells us about the character, that tells us about how they're interacting with other people based on how much plant matter is in their biology. Another thing to keep in mind with this idea of connecting it with your lie that the MC believes about themselves is to actually connect it. If your main character has a difficult time seeing their own self-worth, Maybe you make confidence the key in their magic system. Maybe you make whatever that lie is an element that they have to overcome in order to embrace an aspect of your world building. This helps make that lie feel real and not necessarily just tied to the villain, because this is something about how the whole world works. 
If you saw the D&D movie that came out about a month ago, there is a character in there who has to overcome this lie about his own self-worth before he can cast the magic spell and save the day. It has nothing to do with what the villain is up to. It's how the magic system made his character interesting. The next thing to understand that is very important when it comes to your world building and presenting your world building is knowing when to just wave a hand and say it works because it works and when you need to explain it. This is difficult. It does come with time, some training, and it comes with paying attention because it varies. It really does. We can go back to the explanations that we've done in the past about hard magic versus soft magic, because that's kind of a good test for when to explain and when not to. But other aspects of your world building as well, if it is necessary for the plot, if it is relevant to the main character, actually relevant, then you are more likely going to lean towards needing to explain it. Now, if you think I need to explain this so the reader understands, you're more likely going to lean towards the, it just can be a hand wave. If it's not relevant to the character, it's not relevant to the reader. Also consider the level of complexity of the thing you want to explain and do the opposite. Instead of going, well, it's fairly simple, so I'm just going to hand wave it and I'll explain the intricate detailed stuff. That's not the right way to approach it. Instead, hand wave the complex stuff and explain the simple stuff because your reader is more likely to comprehend it and then trust you with the hand wavy stuff and to trust to know that they don't need to know this. It's the opposite of your first instinct as far as what to explain and what not to, but it's still a much better way to communicate to your audience and keep them engaged. Hand wave the complex stuff, explain the simpler stuff. Another thing that I think we both saw recently on TikTok is this idea of different levels of technology within a fantasy world. What was being complained about was this idea that they had indoor plumbing, but they didn't have gunpowder or they had gunpowder and didn't have this other thing that should have been developed first, according to how our world develops. And it brought up this really interesting idea that I think somebody responded to with, it depends on what the culture values. So it is absolutely okay to have technology that was developed maybe slower in our world, in your world, because your world focused on something different as how their culture was based and how they interacted with other people. Earth has been a traditionally war-based culture for a very long time, so we developed tools for murder and tools for war a lot faster than we developed things like indoor plumbing. We burned down the Library of Alexandria. We valued war over information. If you had designed a world that valued exploration more than combat, they might have spaceships with swords. That's a little excessive, especially if you're putting it in relationship to Earth. But if your character's world is more about going places and doing interesting things, then that's going to be more highly developed in their culture. You don't necessarily have to justify these discrepancies to your readers, but you need to understand it yourself. This is, I think, a really good way to use that iceberg theory that we've talked about at the beginning. If you have that understanding, that basis that is below the water, 
it will show up in how you present the actual information of the technology discrepancies. Because you can then focus on, well, I know that my warlike culture developed gunpowder a lot faster than any other place in this world because of X, Y, and Z. You don't need to explain that, but you can have it represented and influence the rest of your writing as you talk about the culture. Another thing to consider as far as what you're world building and what you're not world building is what I call the Simpsons theory. The Simpsons did this thing where they had recurring background characters and then eventually integrated them and showed us their story. How I Met Your Mother did this kind of with the mom character who popped up throughout the series in the background. Even Harry Potter had a lot of good moments where invisibility cloak, cool, magic. Book seven, we're explaining where the invisibility cloak came from initially. Book two, we see Ginny put a tiara on a mannequin inside the Chamber of Secrets. In book five or six or something like that, it becomes relevant to the whole plot. I think in book one, Dumbledore gives this speech to the new students as their first there. He talks about how he's still discovering things about Hogwarts. He really needed to use the restroom and he couldn't find a toilet. And then all of a sudden he opened a door and there was a room full of toilets. Book five, this becomes the room of requirement. These kinds of details where it's fun in the moment and then you're leaving room for yourself as a storyteller to access that later if you want. So that after you've read book five and you know all about Dumbledore's army, and then you see this speech again, you're like, wait a second, he was talking about the room of requirement there. And this is actually seen quite a lot through the whole Harry Potter book series. And whether that is the author being a plotter and having that all planned out, or understanding and knowing her history of her stories and being able to go back and say, hey, there was this thing that I had that I now need to incorporate. It can work either way. So you as the author can give yourself tools to be able to continue to explore the world, continue to develop it, and have things that were already around, things that people can go back on and say, ooh, that's a really cool detail. Here's this foothold that you've created for yourself. And especially you pantsers out there, you don't have to know what the foothold means. You don't have to know that in book five, we're going to integrate the Room of Requirement. We don't have to know why the Whomping Willow was planted. We don't have to know these details. You're just inserting, sprinkling these through so that you can reference them later if you need to. This is why I really encourage you to take good detailed notes about these fun little details that you include in your story so that when you are writing book two, three, four, whatever, you remember they exist. That is important and a difficult part, especially for pantsers, I think. Little star footnote here. We have done an episode on red herrings, and we have talked multiple times about accidental red herrings. These footholds, there is a right way to do them and a wrong way to do them. Make sure you do it in a self-contained way so that you aren't forced to reference these later. It's just a funny little joke, a funny little anecdote, and we're moving on. So you can reference it later if you want, but you aren't obligated to. Another thing that you need to be careful about when to not world build is when it comes to measurements. 
There have been historically a lot of different ways to measure something. In ancient Egypt, you had cubits, which was a very unreliable way to measure things because not everybody's forearm is the same length. But in our world, people have an idea of what an inch is, what a foot is, what a mile is. In the U.S. and one other place in the world, we use imperial units. The rest of the world, we use metric. Yet, in books, even from countries that use the metric system, they write using the imperial system. There was a great moment in Project Hail Mary where this character is trying to figure out, he has amnesia, he's trying to figure out who he is. And one of the things he recognizes is for small distances, he's thinking in imperial units. And for large distances, he's thinking in metric. And for scientific things, he thinks in metric. So he's like, am I Canadian? Because they kind of do both. What's my own backstory because of which measuring unit I use? It's a fun way to talk about the character. But when it came to actually describing things, he did a great job of using stuff that doesn't have numbers attached, the size of a Labrador. So if you don't want to use inches or miles because you're trying to create that fantasy type setting, which honestly I have problems with, just use familiar measurements. But if you want to avoid that, distance can become time. So it's two days travel on horseback instead of 70 miles. If you are measuring something in a smaller amount of space, I would say room size or smaller, then find something else that's similar. The riverbed was full of golf ball-sized stones. Now, of course, you want this to still be in the world building. So if they have golf, they have golf balls. That's great. That's fine. Make sure if you are using this kind of comparative measurement and you are in a fantasy world or a sci-fi world that looks different than ours, Make sure you're using a comparison that fits within your world, but is still understandable to the reader. We talked a little bit about this in the Make It Real episode earlier this month. We assume that everyone has five fingers on their hand unless it's specified otherwise. So if I say it's a fist-sized beetle, we can assume that the reader is holding a fist in front of them going, okay, that's how big a beetle is. That's terrifying. Yes. It's a fantasy world. But that fist size is going to be about the same. Another comparative measurement that you can use instead when it comes to liquids, it is measured by what you would do with that amount of the liquid. So it's a mouthful, it's deep enough to dive into, large enough to swim in, whatever. It is a comparison to more of how it interacts with a standard human body rather than a liter of liquid. Or worse, a blargan of liquid. Yes, please no blargans. (laughs) So anytime you're telling a measurement, especially if you're inclined to have a number, whatever that number is, even age, you're better off saying he's high school aged than saying he's somewhere between 14 and 18. Anytime you have a number, consider if you can use a simile or metaphor instead. Now... Let's get into the editing process of when not to world build. 
during editing, there are certain things that you need to be looking out for to be able to remove because whether you're a plotter or a panzer, sometimes you are going to include a bunch of information that you don't necessarily need to have there. So as you edit, pay attention to these things in particular. Number one, if it's not something everyone in your world knows and it's not plot relevant, leave it out. So if my universe that I'm creating this world in has this holiday called Christmas and it happens in the middle of winter and the book takes place in the month of May, we don't have to describe what Christmas is like, what it's about, how people disagree on its origins and blah, blah, blah. Not relevant. It's okay to leave it out. Even if your character knows about it, it's over there. You know that goes in the 90% below the ocean's surface in your iceberg. Great. Have it in your notes. You can cut it out of your story. Number two, if you are telling the truth of a place in your world that your characters aren't at yet, consider waiting until the characters actually get there. Introducing rumors ahead of time is okay, but details about the culture just isn't as entertaining to read until they're actually there experiencing it. I read a fantasy lately where this character was new to the entire world and had his traveling companions and they traveled quite a bit. And it really annoyed me that before they got to basically every new location, a character would describe it to them. Most of that information was not relevant to the conversation. There was this whole city that they talked about and then they only spent time in the fighting pits before fleeing. We don't need to know this. If there's a rumor of the whole place is inhabited by vampires, okay, this is interesting. But if you're just going, there are five districts in this particular city and then you only spend time in one of them, we don't care. The only times you really need to explain ahead of time that something is the truth in a place, it's not a rumor, is if there is an inherent danger that your characters are trying to warn the main character about. So saying, hey, we're going into this place that is controlled by a mafia made up entirely of vampires. Make sure that you are in a locked room at night that is very well barred and don't make these particular people angry. And then, of course, make that not happen. Yes, forget to lock the door. It becomes dramatic. It becomes interesting. You are integrating this world building. If this is not the case, if your characters sleep fine through the night, consider taking this out. This is cool, interesting world building. You can have some other character make sure that the door is locked and not explain why, because nothing happens with it. And then later, when you're back in the town four books later, you can go, oh yeah, that's why I locked the door. It's because they're vampires. Number three, does this information show up anywhere else? If it shows up somewhere else and it is explained in equal detail, pick one of those instances. How do I know which one to pick? The one that's closer to the relevant point. Whatever one makes the story more interesting, do that thing. Sometimes that means setting up something to forget about it so that when it happens, there's an oh yeah moment in the reader. More often than not, if it's just a mundane detail about life, Put that information as close to where it's relevant as possible. If you have to pick between the two, epic or relevant. 
if it must be in both places, explain the beginning and summarize later, or the other way around. Explain when it's relevant, summarize when it's not. This is when it's really useful to have that character who doesn't have a clue what's going on because then they can ask the question, hey, I know you explained this to me once already. What was the information again? So you can make it part of the story and not just, oh, by the way, reader, don't forget about this thing. And the final thing, number four, draw your own line in the sand as far as what you want to explain. There should be limitations. There should be a limit of your character's understanding, their accurate understanding of the world. Maybe whatever physical influence they have. Draw your own line in the sand, figure it out, and stick to it. My philosophy, as an action author especially, is I will not spend more time explaining something about the world than the character spends thinking about it. If the character is not thinking about it at that moment, I leave it out. If the character only thinks about it for 12 seconds, I will only spend 12 seconds explaining it. Now, if you have a character that likes to go on long mental diatribes in their storytelling, then that is a fun opportunity for you to do a little bit of world building. But it has to be relevant and in character for it to be pulled off. The story that both Lee and I are thinking about for this I loved each one of those sections because I know the character and I love the character so much. Lee did not like them as much. I felt they could have been cut down quite a bit. They were still entertaining for sure, but there were definitely moments where it's like, okay, let's take that paragraph and make it a sentence. You said the same thing like four times. Can we just trim it down? (laughs) Please. But I really like that. So you have to understand what you want out of the explanation and what you want your readers to feel. And it is always better to make sure that it stays within character. To sum up what you need to know during editing, if it's not something relevant or something everybody knows, cut it out. If you're talking about a place that your characters aren't, leave it out. If the information shows up more than once, Cut one of those out or trim them both down quite a bit. Or if it goes outside of those boundaries, outside of your line in the sand, take it out. These are all moments that it is not helpful to your story to world build. For those of you who just love to world build, I get it. I'm with you. I love world building. I love writing, but I love world building. You might consider, if you aren't interested in developing plot or characters and you just want to build the world, look into game development. Look into making tabletop RPGs or video games, maybe being a writer developer for those, because it is an option. It is a career. If you want to create cool and interesting worlds, Those are out there aplenty, and you can let other people figure out the plots and the characters that are going to fit within this world that you've created. The most important thing to think about when you're world building, especially as we've spent all month prattling on about what to world build, how to world build, when not to world build, the most important thing for you to think about is how you process that advice understand that no two world builders are the same. You are going to go about it differently than I am. 
the advice that we give is not going to work for every single story. We've provided you with a good foundation and with some tips and tricks that you can use, but it depends on the story that you want to tell. Lee's world-building journey is so very different from my own world-building journey. We've learned separate lessons that apply to each of us separately. That's a lot of why there are two of us on this podcast is because we have unique experiences and where they overlap, other authors might be able to learn from as well. So make sure when you're getting advice, you listen to someone who has a similar journey as you. World building can be fun. It can be so freeing as you create, develop, and explore a world that you have imagined. Make sure that the story that you write keeps you as entertained as you write it as it does when you're building the world for it. If it starts to feel like work or recitation or whatever, maybe reanalyze and make sure that you write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. 